Today from Luke 14, we're going to talk about counting the cost. You and I know that most things in life involve a cost. And we've all had the experience where we thought about buying something only to discover, well, actually, that's too expensive for me. And we back away. It's years ago now when we came back from overseas and we had stored some belongings here in America, but when we set up a home here in Richmond, we had to buy some things like a new bedroom suit. And so we had seen an advertisement for a store in Richmond back in the day that said low North Carolina prices. That sounds like the store for us. We need a bargain as we try to reestablish ourselves back here in America. So we went to that store with so-called low North Carolina prices. It was just Joy and eight-year-old Hillary and me. And we go in there, we head for the bedroom furniture, and we turned over the first tag and realized this is not the discount we were looking for. I don't know what kind of North Carolina prices they're talking about, but this is too rich for us. What we should have done is pivoted right then for the door to leave. But a little vanity in me, maybe a lot, I thought, I don't want to make it so obvious we can't afford it here, so let's just keep walking. I thought we were looking very naturally in our stroll through the store until Hillary, eight-year-old Hillary says, why are we walking so fast? <laughs> so we got outside, and that's when I said, okay, well, we couldn't afford anything in this store. We need to find a better discount. Thankfully, we did at another store, found the discount we were looking for. But you've had experiences like that. I need something. Ooh, I'd like to have that until you see the price, and you go, nope, I'm going to walk away from that one. Or like in our case, I'm going to run away from that one. Well, Jesus is going to tell us to apply that same thinking when it comes to following him. He says, you're going to see it in our text, you need to count the cost. You're thinking about becoming a Christian. You're thinking about following him. You better count the cost. Now, he wants you in, but he wants you to think about it ahead of time. Now, let's make it very clear at the very beginning that salvation is free. Jesus paid the price in full to reconcile us to the Father. So we don't want to mistake anything we're going to talk about that we somehow work for our salvation. Free gift. You must repent of your sins and believe in Jesus. But when you come to faith, you are taking on a commitment. It is a faith commitment. We could say it's a full life commitment. Jesus couldn't be more clear in what we're about to read. In fact, we're going to see together in a few moments that Jesus expects full surrender in at least three areas of our lives when we come to him. We're going to see it this way. He's calling for surrender in our family, our very selves, and all of our stuff. So that's where we're going together from our text. Luke 14, let's see it together now, picking up in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost? whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore... Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has 
cannot be my disciple. I love this. I love how bold Jesus is. Not at all bashful to call for a 100% commitment to him. He's calling for nothing less than total surrender, full commitment. Let's observe here. This says a lot about Jesus, doesn't it? No mere prophet talks like that. So when you're thinking about who is this Jesus who would claim everything from me, who is he? Well, you got to take him out of the prophet category. This is God walking on the earth, God and man in one. And he is saying very naturally, without any apology, you're going to come after me. Everything must be surrendered to me. Now, notice the context here. Verse 25 tells us, now great crowds accompanied him. People were flocking to Jesus for various motivations. Certainly some were there in the crowds because of curiosity. Hey, maybe this great teacher is going to do one of these miracles we've been hearing about. So in the crowd, the curious, the skeptics were always in the crowds. There were those who were seeking perhaps spiritually and then the sincere, those who had already believed in Christ. But understand this, the crowds themselves were never the goal. It's pretty easy to draw a crowd, isn't it? I heard about a church years ago in Texas that drew a huge crowd because they offered on that Sunday to give away a new car, some kind of drawing. Can you imagine if we'd advertise a brand new car to somebody here, we'd be overwhelmed. It kind of reminds me when we used to do those fall festivals on the little plot of land where we now have a building. The last year we had our fall festival, we knew it was going to be our last year even before we had it. But when we were overrun with 2,000 people on that small little plot of land, we thought, we, we'll never do this again. We're a victim of our own success. We advertised a little bit. That went viral. People on their business community boards, you know, like here's opportunities for the week. It, I think people Im imagine acres of land, rolling hills, moon bounces spread out, clowns, you know. But, but people came to our small little plot of land. You, if those of you who were helping serve that day, it was frightening. Our goal was just to get these people home without getting killed. They were, they were crossing Staples Mill Road in the dark trying to get over here. The police showed up unannounced to help us out of our very successful fall festival. And so we thought, we'll never do that again. And now, of course, we've got the space. What we pivoted to, let me, lest you think we're no longer trying to reach people, we've moved to smaller block parties. We'll take the moon bounces to the parks with the popcorn machine and friendship. In fact, we're having more gospel conversations in these smaller events than when we're trying to manage and keep people safe in a crowd. The point is, the crowd's never the point. The idea, even when we had that, was the hope was, let's get to know our neighbors. Let's love them. Let's then have opportunities for conversations to point them to Jesus, that they might come disciples over time. But here, notice Jesus. He's not looking for groupies. He's not looking for fans. He already has the multitudes. If he just wanted fans, he wouldn't have spoken to them the way he does in this passage. He's looking for disciples. From this crowd of spectators, he's going to call out the serious among them to faith in him. Now, Jesus did this on other occasions as well. Maybe you remember the occasion in John 6 where another group had gathered and Jesus says this to the crowd. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. That's not a popular way to describe, <laughs> describe it. And here's what happened. We read a little bit farther in John 6, 66 and following. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. 
Jesus also told us in the Sermon on the Mount that the way to eternal life is narrow and few are going to find it. So this has some implications for us as we think about sharing the gospel with others. Now we're going to share the gospel that salvation is free. Jesus paid it all. You need to repent of your sins and come to him. But we can't leave out that there's a commitment in this. We need to help people understand, yes, come receive the free gift, but there's commitment. I was thinking about this. It's really a bit like a child. You know, a young child, they get fascinated with a toy until they see another toy that somebody else has that looks even better than the one they have. What do they do? They abandon the toy they have. And all, I got to have that toy. Now, nothing else matters till I get that one. That's how we are with Jesus. We have stuff in our hands in our lives, but then we see, oh, he would forgive all my sins. He would adopt me into his family. He would give me eternal life. I'm dropping everything that I might have that that Jesus offers to me. But we want people to understand you are dropping everything else. You are coming to Jesus. So when we're sharing the gospel, let's make sure we're giving them that gospel. That we're not giving diet Christ or somehow, somehow a, a less filling Christianity. You're going to get all the flavor with half the commitment. We don't want to say phrases like this without explaining it. We don't want to say to somebody, oh, you want to go to heaven? Just say these words after me. Now, that might be fine after you've shared the gospel and they don't know what to say. And you've explained, listen, you're repenting of your sins. You're turning. You're trusting only in Jesus. And then you might say, hey, and this is what you might pray. Use your own heart, your own words. We don't want to just say things like this. Like, oh, you want to go to heaven? Just ask Jesus into your heart. Well, that's not bad to say maybe in the conversation, but... No, they, they can't just ask Jesus into their heart. Though They need to understand the gospel. Oh, what, what happens here? Oh, Jesus died for me. He was raised from the dead. I, I need to turn from my sin, trust only in him, and then ask him into my life or give my life to him, however we phrase it. We just don't want to give a gospel that's not how Jesus talked. Notice here, Jesus, if you want to come after me, this is what it looks like. So let's look at these three areas of surrender now that Jesus calls out here for us. First of all, a call to surrender our families to him. Jesus unashamedly calls for us to surrender our families to him. Verse 26 again. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. So Jesus here is calling for a radical reordering of all of our relationships. Now, why does Jesus use the word hate here? Well, he's speaking of by comparison, by degree. So Jesus is using a figure of speech here a Semitic idiom here. He's using the word hate here as, as you would do to grab attention, to, to cause you to, to lean in, that he's serious about this. And so it, it was a way of speaking in their time. And we can do this as well. We can use hyperbole to make a point. Jesus adds clarity to this when you look at Matthew 10, 37. Jesus said there, he who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So the point is this. You are, as a follower of Jesus, to love everybody else in your life less than you love Jesus. That you are to love Jesus first by far. Your love for Jesus should be of a higher quality than any other love you have in your life. But of course, when we interpret scripture with scripture, we know he's not calling us to actually hate other people because He's taught us elsewhere how we're to love other people actually more than we presently do. In fact, in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, we're told to honor our father and mother. We're told in Mark 12, 31 and elsewhere, we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. We're told in Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. 
And we're told that we're to love each other in the church, love one another diligently, fervently from the heart in places like 1 John. But make no mistake, Jesus is calling for the top spot in your life. There's no other way to understand what he's saying. He is taking first place. He demands it. He's to be your first love. Notice with me how comprehensive this is. You are to love him over your father and your mother. You are to love him more than your wife and children. Ladies, you're to love him more than your husband and your children. You're to love him beyond your brothers and sisters and your family. Jesus calls for far more than you give to anyone else. He's to be the highest priority and the highest loyalty of your life. Now, why is it important for Jesus to stress here that he must be above your family? Because most of us would say, my family's not a really competitor to Jesus. They, they want me to love Jesus more. But listen, not every family is like that. And around the world, family will be the first persecutors against someone who wants to follow Jesus. I, I once met a man who told me his testimony of how when he came to faith in South, his South Asian country, when he told his family about coming to Jesus, his father was so upset, his father chained him to a tree planned to kill him. If he wouldn't turn away from Jesus back to the majority religion, he was going to kill him. And the, the mother came out in the middle of the night, loving her son and gave him food, unlocked him and told him to flee. Thankfully, the end of that story was that years later, feeling called to go back with the gospel to his family, he was able to lead many of his family members to Christ. But you can have family vehemently opposed to you following Jesus and Jesus saying, and you will follow me. You will love me more than them. Here's what Jesus said in Luke 21, 16. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Jesus had people count the cost all the time. Maybe nobody in your family tried to kill you for Jesus, but you probably have some family members who think you're taking this whole Jesus thing a little too far. Hey, we, we'll go Christmas and Easter, but why are you going every week? What is all that? You're, you're actually reading the Bible on a Tuesday? Why would you do that? I was acted that way toward my big brother when he came to Christ initially. I thought this is, I remember telling him, we're all Christians, George. You don't need to talk about it all the time. That's what, now a pastor. But um, that's, what, that's what I said to him. I was one of the persecutors in his life. I'm glad he didn't listen to me. IMB missionaries sometimes face this with their families. They're feeling called of God to go to the nations and they tell their families, we're going to go and uh, go serve Christ overseas. And sometimes the family's angry. You're going to take my grandchildren with you to another nation. How could you do it? Think about an unbelieving set of parents to these grownups with their kids. I've heard stories that some of these parents, grandparents, that they'll actually sue to try to get them not to be able to take the grandkids Overseas, I don't know if they're successful or not at such a lawsuit, but that's hostility. And nevertheless, we're going to follow Jesus. He is first. Love you, but love him first by far. And of course, some people make their own children their idols. Yeah, Jesus, but my kids, I love my kids and I'll do whatever my kids and my kids activities, whatever my kids want to do. And everything gets out of order. Jesus, I've got to be first over even your children. So when you're faced with these choices, do I please these other people in my life or Jesus? When it comes to those choices, Jesus comes first. If your mother doesn't want you to worship the Lord, worship Jesus anyway. If your spouse doesn't want you to follow Jesus, follow Jesus anyway. If your children are rebellious and giving you grief and they don't want to come along and follow Jesus, you follow Jesus anyway. In fact, while they're still living with you, you can declare, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Can't make you love him. Can't make you saved. 
But this is who we are. This is what we do. He's first. Or if your best friends don't understand your devotion to Christ, Jesus has to be first far above them. So here, notice, in this call to be a Christian, notice you're surrendering your family to him. Notice also Jesus calls for the surrender of your whole self to him. Verse 26 again. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, here it is, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus says you are to hate even your own life. In other words, place yourself far below Christ. Love Jesus far more than you are inclined to love yourself. This is important because oftentimes, have you noticed, there's often a clash between what you want and what your Savior wants. Like, this is what I want to do, and here's what God wants me to do, and there's a clash there. But you've declared at the beginning, when I came to know Jesus, I surrendered all of me. So when I have an idea and some things I want to do that clash with what God says is right to do, then I'm going with him. I'm dead to myself. I'm going to follow him. He's made it very clear here. Now, notice here, he says, if you don't do this, you can't be my disciple. What's he talking about here? Is he talking about you can't become one of the 12, one of the apostles? No. Is he talking about a different class of Christian? Like disciples are here, ordinary Christians are here. If you want to be one of the elite, you got to do that. No. No, in the New Testament, the word disciple was the first word for Christians. We're told it was later. We're told in the book of Acts, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So the word for Christian first was this word disciple. It's just about being a Christian. This is what's involved. Free gift, but I'm laying out everything else that I might have it. Notice verse 27. He says this. He, he continues, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus said the same thing earlier in the gospel of Luke, Luke 9, 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul. So it's a strange and jarring image. I'm sure for those first years, think about it. He's talking to multitudes of people and he starts talking about taking up your cross. What are they hearing when they hear that? They knew nothing of cross jewelry. This is the first audience here. This is the first century. This is before Jesus died on a cross. This is before somebody would use the idiom in our language. Well, you know, this is just my cross to bear. You know, I've got that difficult person in my life. That's, that's an idiom that's come along. That's not what, that's not what the crowd's hearing. Jesus brings up cross, carrying your cross. Only thing they know about cross is a, a grotesque Roman instrument of execution. So Jesus brings up cross. They go, oh, that, that horrible way that the Romans kill people that eventually Jesus himself will die on. That's what comes to mind here. So carrying your cross is not an idea of talking about, oh, there's just some burden I have in my life. This is a way of saying dying to yourself, identifying with Christ's death and resurrection, your own death, the old life that you, you had. Another way of saying giving up all of the control of your life to him. Galatians 2.20, Paul spoke this way. He said, I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But Paul said that I've been crucified with Christ. Romans 12.1, present your bodies as living sacrifices. When we baptize, baptize people here, it symbolizes a lot of things, but it symbolizes our identification with the death and burial 
and resurrection of Christ. When a person's baptized, they are declaring, yes, this is also what happened to me. Now that I'm in Christ, I've died to my old life apart from Christ. I've been raised now to walk in newness of life. So Jesus says, you, you need to carry your cross and come after me. What's that mean? Simply, Jesus expects you, when you're saved, to follow him. It's actually surprising how many people sign on for the heaven that they want with never any intention of actually following Jesus. Like, like, that would seem like a foreign concept to some. But notice here, Jesus doesn't segment that out. You can't have, well, I just want heaven. When I die in 100 years, which we all hope, <laughs> hope it's a long time. When I die in 100 years, I, I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to follow Jesus now. Jesus didn't give any such option there. You're, you're going to deny yourself, take up your cross. You're going to come after him. You're going to follow him. So when you sign on to Jesus, like, I want you to save my soul, then I, I want you to lead my life. You are Lord. That's what Lord means of everything. So I'll follow you. I'll follow your teachings. I'll follow your way. I'll join you in your mission. I'll join you in holiness as you help. And I want to take on your life. Verse 27 again, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. We are the people who've surrendered to Christ who say, wherever you lead, I will go. That's what I want to do. Many have used the illustration of this as, as like giving him a blank check where you, you just give him a blank check, you sign the bottom. That'd be dangerous to do, by the way, with somebody. If you had a check and you sign the bottom, just let it float around. They, they used to call that bearer paper. Somebody could take that and drain you of everything. But that's what we do. I trust you so much, Lord. You call all the shots from here on. I realize many of you don't write checks anymore, so we've got to update the illustration. So debit card with a PIN number. Was, what is even that? Okay, Apple Pay with the, all the credentials, whatever. Just, just whatever way you want to say it, I'm giving everything over to you. You call the shots from here on. So a total surrender of your family, all your relationships to him. Total surrender of yourself to him. Now we'll skip down to verse 33 for a moment in this one. A call to surrender all your stuff to Christ. We'll do this fast. Verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. It's almost like Jesus throws that one in. And... Unless you renounce everything you have, you can't be my disciple. So yes, you're surrendering all your relationships. You're surrendering all your previous plans and yourself to him. And now just makes it clear and all your possessions, they're all his. So Jesus takes complete control of our lives. We give all of our stuff to him. And really they, all of our stuff always was his. We just didn't know it. But as believers, we're those who acknowledge it. Oh yeah, everything that I have thought that I possess, I acknowledge it all is yours. And it's a great moment really of application to take inventory. So what do I have that really is his? So you're blessed with clothes and you think well, all this clothes, this is yours. If you're blessed with a car or more than one car, those cars, Lord, are yours. If you have a home, then this home is yours. All, everything in it is yours. Any device you have, that's all yours. And I want to use it for you. I renounce it as anything that I think that I own. It's all yours under your leadership, under your lordship. So this is a total commitment Jesus is calling for. And so here now, verse 28, here's where he reminds us through these two quick parables to count the cost. Is this what you signed on for? And if you're coming to Christ, this is what you're signing on for. Verse 28 again, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace 
So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Notice these two illustrations. He gives them fast. Look at them. First of all, a person who wants to build something. We might say a contractor. You got to make sure before you start digging the ground, putting a foundation, that you've thought through the cost of this entire project. Do I have enough to actually finish it? Otherwise, I'm bringing shame to myself. When we lived overseas in Central Asia, we lived in the former Soviet Union. Just a few years earlier, the Soviet Union had collapsed. And so as I'd walk about the city, I would see so many half-built buildings. And I don't know the whole story of all those buildings, but there were so many of them, just empty shells of buildings or little foundation here, some bricks and cement and some rebar. And you think, what's that? But it always brought to mind this, an unfinished building. And it wasn't like there were cranes there and building materials like they're going to start again any day now. It's like just not there. I can only guess that maybe when all the money was coming in or what little money there was from the Soviet Union, once that spigot dried up, they just had to stop. I don't know. Maybe it was individuals, just poor planning, but, but I saw an illustration all the time of what that looked like. Here we are in this building, and you know, for years, we, we knew we need to make space for others, and we knew we needed to build space, which is now MP1, the student space below, and all the parking that we added, and, but for years, we knew we needed it, but we couldn't just up and go do it, so there were years where we were living with the pinch, just think, we got a plan for this, and so lots of meetings, lots of planning, lots of saving Many of you were giving sacrificially for years long before we ever broke ground because we need to make sure we do this in a responsible way, make sure we can actually carry it to completion. The other thing was we were convinced we did not want to, we didn't want to change who we were as a church to get a building. The big thing we said was we don't want to stop giving to missions just to get more space for ourselves. So we thought, no, we're, going to, we're building this to make space for other people and we're going to do it in such a way by God's grace, it doesn't divert us away from the ends of the earth. And planting churches and all that. So by God's grace, we've been able to do that. And so we're enjoying that space. We're able to continue giving generously to missions, just like we hope. But it took planning to do that. Jesus said, you need to have that same type of thinking. Count the cost. When you think about following me, it's an all-in commitment. The other illustration is kings going to war. And this really does bring to mind what we're seeing in the news, sadly, every day. We see this war in Ukraine and and we hear the analysts say that it's brutal and all this devastation, but they're saying this isn't going according to what Putin thought would happen, that he must have miscalculated the expectation he could just roll in and take over within a couple of days. And now we're weeks and weeks in and so many lives lost. So, so what we would say when we look at Putin, well, not only evil, we see that, but also unwise, poor planning here. But when we look at what it means to follow Jesus, we don't want to fail to assess what does this involve? The free gift of eternal life, how wonderful. We'll never regret that decision. But coming in, I drop everything else that I might have him. And I realize when we're first trusting Christ, we maybe haven't thought through all of that, but I love how Adrian Rogers used to describe it. He said, when you're coming to Jesus, no matter how you were, you're, you're just bringing all that you know of yourself to all that you know of Jesus. So you're all in, even if you didn't know all the ramifications yet, but you just knew when you were trusting Jesus, I'm bringing all that I know about me to all that I know about Jesus. You're totally surrendered. That's what we're doing. So some of you today, that was you some time ago. You at one time were all in and maybe hearing the words of Jesus again from Luke 14, you're realizing somehow, maybe even inadvertently, you've renegotiated the terms of discipleship with him. You used to be fully surrendered, but maybe you've moved into something like, hey, I'm sort of committed. I'm sort of surrendered. Is that good with you, Jesus? And he's telling you here, absolutely not. That's, that's completely foreign to the New Testament, a sort of commitment to him. 
It's all in. Would you even now consciously, Lord, I surrender my, all my relationships to you. You are Lord over all of them. I surrender my very life to you. Whatever you would require of me, I give it. And I surrender all the stuff that I thought was mine. It's all under you. For some of you, that's going to be a first-time commitment today. You're realizing that Jesus wants to save you because of his death and resurrection. He makes that possible. That you're, I'm coming in with my eyes wide open. I gladly drop it all that I might have Jesus. I pray that you'll do that. One other way, I want you to count the cost. What if you size up that and go, I don't think I want that. That's too high a price for me. I want you to count the cost of not following Jesus. Count the cost of not putting your faith in Jesus. It's going to cost you far more. Your very soul, eternally separated from God in hell, that's the cost of looking. Because you can't do like the furniture store for me. I just went to a cheaper store. But there's no, other, there's no other source of salvation. Jesus is it. The only one who lived perfectly. The only one who spilled his blood for you on the cross. The only one who was raised from the dead. Salvation's in no other name. So count the cost and run to him. But don't turn away from him. He loves you. He wants to save you. Would you come to him today? Let's pray.